Last time I was preaching was two weeks ago and uh, we entitled the talk Living for Jesus in a Hostile World. And in a way, that title, Living for Jesus in a Hostile World, would be a great title for this whole letter, really, wouldn't it? Peter is writing to Christian people here uh, in the first century who are facing immense struggles and he wants to encourage them and to help them and to inspire them to continue living for Jesus even though it was very, very hard. There was a lot of persecution against Christians. The Emperor Nero was um, doing some pretty awful things to people who were following Jesus. And it was hard for these people. I'm sure there was a strong temptation for these people to give up or even to go back to their old lives that they lived before they became Christians. Their question may well have been, why on earth is it so hard to live for Jesus? It is such a struggle. Since I became a Christian, my life has gone downhill. I may as well give up and go back to living how I was before. Well, I've got a picture here. Um, I, I think I, I do think in pictures. You, you get to know that. I, I, this picture, I've no idea where it's from. I found this on the internet. And I, I think, as we come to the first six verses that we're going to go through today, this picture sums up, I think, what Peter wants to say to these Christians. What on earth is the preacher talking about? this morning I don't mean you all need to go out and buy a rubber duck with two heads I think um, by the time we finish maybe we can make this picture onto some little stickers and you can stick it in the margin of your Bible so that you never forget what Peter's saying here what do I mean well this, this is my kind of big idea Peter is saying if you are going to live for Jesus in this hostile world whether then or now you need to be able to look both ways. You need to be able to look back to something and you need to be able to look forward to something. Hence the picture, because it's looking both ways. This is normal Christianity and it involves great and important facts. Not feelings, but facts. It involves crucial events in history that both relate to God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that we need to look back to? Well, we need to be able to look back to the cross where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died. And we need to be able to look forward to the day when he will come again to his world not in the way he came the first time, born in a little smelly manger, but in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. If you want to live for Jesus in a hostile world, you need to be able to look back to the cross, the first coming of Jesus, and look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And those two great realities will steal your heart so that you won't give up and you will face all the realities that you need to face with courage and faith 
and bravery. If someone asks you, what does it mean to be a real Christian? What would you say? Lots of people have different opinions, don't they, about what it means to be a Christian. Some of them, no doubt, will be completely and utterly bizarre. But what, what would you say? Some people claim to be Christians and they've no idea what Christianity really is. It's easy to claim to be a Christian, isn't it? But what is a real Christian? Well, I think Peter here in this chapter sums up what real, true Christianity is. And it involves looking back and looking forward. So maybe we can print off some little stickers and you can stick them in your bowl here. And we're gonna, that's all we're going to do today. We're going to look back and we're going to look forward. Look back to the cross and look forward to Jesus coming again. I nearly entitled this talk Healthy Christianity. And then I thought, that's a rubbish title because it implies there's another kind of Christianity. But there isn't. This is it. This is not healthy Christianity and there's another kind if you want. It isn't like going to the supermarket and picking the brand of Christianity you want. This is normal Christianity. And I've been so looking forward to getting into this uh, chapter with you. I want you to realise that this is what makes this, these passages relevant to us as well because think about this. In a sense, we live in, in the same way that these Christians lived, don't we? The thing that connects us to them, even though they lived many centuries ago, is that they had to live the same way we should live. Looking back to a cross and looking forward to Jesus coming again. That's how they had to live and it's still exactly how we need to live in this world. We're getting very close here to the very heart of life and death issues. And I think this is the kind of teaching what Peter says here is so radical I hope we'll see that as we go through these verses this is the kind of teaching that will either empty our church because you won't like it or it will fill our church with people who are excited and thrilled to be alive and following Jesus that's so important this is well let's uh, first of all get into looking back then it was very good timing that Pete Jackson came last week to preach because um, chapter 4 and verse 1 begins with the word therefore and in a way that word therefore goes back to verse um, 18 of the previous chapter so when Pete came last week verses 19 to the end of the chapter are like brackets so that was perfect time for Peter to come and deal with the brackets. That was a little detour in Peter's mind. And they're, they're not easy verses to understand, but Peter dealt with that superbly well last week. So when it says therefore, it goes back really to verse 18 of the previous chapter. Peter in verse 18 of chapter 3 says about Jesus, Christ died for sins 
once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Peter is helping us to understand what was happening on that day. We call it Good Friday, don't we? We think about it Easter. The day when Jesus, the Son of God, was taken and he allowed them to do it deliberately. He was taken by wicked men. They whipped him. They spat in his face. They hit him with sticks. They led him outside the city and they stretched him out on the ground and nailed his body to wood and then lifted it up, dropped it into a socket and left him hanging there to die like a criminal. Peter says that Jesus was not dying because he was a criminal. Christ died for our sins. He was righteous, taking the place of the unrighteous. Why? So that you and me could be brought back to God. Jesus was dying because he loves you and loves me. Jesus was dying because sin is a serious thing. It needs forgiving. It needs dealing with. And God has sent Jesus to be the substitute, the one who died in our place so that we would not face God's anger and and righteous indignation against sin. Jesus suffered very unfairly, but he suffered willingly and he suffered savingly. More than that, he suffered victoriously. Because he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again. And after appearing to his disciples, he ascended back to heaven from where he reigns, even now, as king. So when we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, in these ways, Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What a strange thing to say. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. So, I just want to have a little think about this with you. That's what we do. Look at the Bible, have a little think about it. What, what on earth does Peter mean? Jesus died for sinners so that sinners could be saved. But he says to these people who live in a hostile world... You need to arm yourselves with the same attitude. Well, straight away you can see that this is a military idea, isn't it? Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. You need to pick up your armour and put it on because you're in a battle and there's an enemy who is trying to grind you down and hurt you and harm you. You need to do something to protect yourself in the battle that you're in. You need to be ready to fight. Christianity is not a nice brochure with pictures in it of how nice life will be if you come to Jesus. Like a holiday brochure. That, that wasn't the case for these people. It cost them their jobs, their lives, their friendships. 
Following Jesus was a costly business. There was no nice brochure saying, come to Jesus and all will be well. Peter says, you need to arm yourselves because you are in a fight, in a hostile world. But secondly, does this not also reveal that the battle that we're in is not won or lost on the outside with swords and shields and bombs it's won and lost on the inside Peter speaks a lot about this the mind is crucial he says in verse 7 on this very page be clear minded he says on the opposite page be self controlled and alert way back in the beginning in chapter 1 he talks about preparing your minds for action in chapter 1 and verse 13 Peter knows that the battle that we're in is won or lost in the way we think how you think will shape what you do and so he says arm yourselves with an attitude arm myself with an attitude can I not have a gun <laughs> can I not have a gun that, it's, a, it's a weird way to talk isn't it you need to arm yourselves with the right way of thinking if you're going to prevail in this battle in this hostile world you will need to cultivate specific attitudes and he tells us what it is since Jesus suffered physically you need to arm yourself, steal yourself, protect yourself by having the same attitude that he had. What attitude is that then? What attitude did Jesus have? Well, Jesus had a mindset that was totally single-mindedly focused on one thing, dying what Jesus was in deadly serious earnest that he was born to die on a Roman cross and it was the goal of his whole life what an attitude that is there's a difficult verse here did I, did I put it here oh, we'll come back to that the, the, this, um, the, just the second half of this one I, I want to linger with you this is so important because it's a very hard verse to understand and hopefully by the time we're done we'll get it therefore since Christ suffered in his body arm yourselves with the same attitude why? because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin now, just wait with me here because, you know, this is hard. I, I need you to concentrate now. The reason this verse is hard, there's lots of different interpretations of this verse, but none of them work. This is one of those places in the Bible where there's a little bit of truth in all these interpretations, but none of them really work. This is a very hard verse to classify and to kind of pin down and to nail and put in the right pigeonhole sometimes the Bible's like that really frustrating for a preacher I wish I could sort of say that's it 
But it's, you, so let me give you four alternatives. I think there's a little bit of truth in each one, but all of them have got problems. And then we'll try and nail what I think Peter's trying to say, and hopefully it'll be hot. Here's the pious view, first of all, okay? This is the idea that suffering is a good thing because it will take away your sin. Do you remember the film that came out a few years ago called The Da Vinci Code? Did anyone see it? Who saw it? Yes? No? A few people did, a few people didn't. There was a character in that film who was like, he was like a monk. He, 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 he was a very odd looking fellow because he was like a bambino type of uh, white. Had the kind of hood and um, he would go around and uh, he, he was basically assassinating people behind the scenes in the film. But he had the idea, he had a lot of guilt. He was a very mixed up individual. And under his, there's, a, there's an awful scene in the film where he's got a whip, he's in his room and he's got a whip that he can kind of flip and basically whip himself so that his back's bleeding. He wore a thing on his leg underneath this kind of cassock that had spikes in it that he could close around his thigh and tighten up and the spikes would go into his leg. And he was a man, very mixed up man, it, obviously it's a fall, but there are people who believe this, the more I suffer, the more I'm purging my sins away. That's the pious view, isn't it? And that's an extreme form of it, but sometimes we fall into this trap too, don't we? We feel guilty, we have some suffering and we think, well, maybe God's punishing me. Listen, Christ died for our sins. Christ has suffered for sins. Once and for all. So that we do not have to suffer for our sins. You cannot earn forgiveness by suffering. So that view, it doesn't work. You will not save yourself by hurting yourself. You can't atone for your own sins or guilt by harming your body. So this verse can't mean that he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. But maybe Peter doesn't mean that. Maybe he means that suffering in our lives is a way of God dealing with our sins to help us to forsake them. So in other words, hard things come into our lives and it's not that God is trying to atone for our sins by our suffering, but he's trying to discipline us. Like a parent with a child, I suppose. And he's trying to teach us through our sufferings and difficulties. Is that what Peter means? He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. This is certainly a biblical idea. There are times when God disciplines his children to teach them important lessons and to purify them and refine their faith. faith. Peter himself uses this very argument in chapter 1. These trials have come so that your faith, which is more precious than gold, will be refined and purified. So difficult, this is important, difficulties that come into our lives are always, they're never a punishment for sin. Christ has died. 
but they are an opportunity always for us to learn always the difficulties that we face whether it's externally or internally or with people they're always an opportunity for discipleship what is God teaching me through this so there is some biblical truth in that idea the problem with that view though is that the Greek verb that Peter uses here is very final and it's past tense he who has suffered in his body is done with sin that isn't true with this view is it that God disciplines us we're not perfect we won't be perfect till we get to heaven so even this view even though there's truth in it and it's a biblical idea I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here because we're not yet done with sin you see what I mean it's a hard verse to interpret isn't it so that's the pious view what about the practical view in this view Peter is talking about their own death as Christian believers as martyrs because he who has suffered in his body i.e. died for his faith is done with sin that's true this is an amazing thing about martyrdom isn't it for a Christian the time when you will be free of sin is when you get to heaven and the very worst your enemies could do for you is to take your life and yet that's the very thing that will bring you to ultimate victory isn't that incredible he who has suffered in his body is done with sin it's over there's some truth in that the problem with that analysis though is how do you interpret then verse 2 that then says as a result he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires he can't be talking about martyrs can he because he goes on to talk about the rest of their lives so he could be being practical but I don't think so what about the theological view this is uh, a tricky one with some truth in this too in this view Peter isn't speaking about them but he's continuing to speak about Jesus and um, this is a true biblical idea I got oh, I was going to say I've got a five pound note here, here's my little uh, sheet here this, this is the idea of union with Jesus so if you can use your imagination just imagine that this is you and when you put your faith in Jesus imagine this Bible is Jesus and you are joined to him you're in him there you are with your little head poking out see this is Jesus and you're in him whatever happens to Jesus happens to you the same way that whatever happens to this book will happen to the paper that's in it what that means is when Jesus died if you are connected to him and you are in him in a real sense you died with him when Jesus rose from the dead in a, in a real sense because you are in him you have risen to a new life in Christ when Jesus ascends to heaven in a sense the Bible says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places that's our position theoretically because we're joined to him we're in him everything that he's done belongs to us we're in him so is that what Peter means here you could go to um, 
Romans chapter 6 to see this argument. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 6. And he actually says to Christian believers in the letter to Romans, what you need to do is count yourselves dead to sin because theoretically you died with Christ. Sin has no power over you anymore. Offer yourself to God as instruments of righteousness and reckon yourself dead to sin. In other words, be what you really are theoretically. You have died with Christ, live a new life. Sin shall not be your master anymore because you're under grace now. Well, that's a theological view. So when he says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin, he's talking about Jesus suffering and being done with sin so that we can spend the rest of our lives not living for earthly desires, but rather for the will of God. Sounds very plausible. I think it just seems to me, I don't know, to be a little bit far-fetched that, to force that theology onto these verses. I think if Peter wanted to say what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, he would have said it. And to try and read that onto these verses, as true as those verses are, if he'd meant to be talking about union with Jesus, surely he would have spelled it out. It's a very strange way to say it, if that's what he means. So I'm, I'm not sure myself if, if that idea works either. The literal view, I suppose, is that he's just talking about Jesus. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he, that is Christ, who has suffered in his body, is done with sin. In other words, Jesus has come into the world to identify with sinners, and when he died, he cried out on the cross, it's finished. And sin would tempt him and disturb him no more. He's talking about Jesus, just literally. I think the problem with that is verse 2 again, isn't it? Because how do you interpret verse 2 when it says, as a result, he doesn't live the rest of his life for evil human desires if he's talking literally about Jesus? There's some truth in that idea too. Jesus was finished with sin and would never have to come back and fight it again. But it can't mean that because verse 2 then doesn't make sense. So there you are, four views. All of them have got a little bit of truth in them. None of them perfectly make sense. You just can't properly classify this statement. Well, I want to suggest to you that the key is here that Peter is not making a theological statement but rather he's urging an attitude. I think that's the key word in this verse, attitude. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. He's wanting them to have the same attitude as Jesus towards what? Towards suffering? Yes. But why did Jesus suffer? He suffered because of and for our sins. Jesus was willing to die rather than negotiate with sin. He steeled himself and prepared himself to go all the way to the cross. That's the attitude that Jesus had. 
he was in deadly earnest he came into the world and declared war on sin and that's the language Peter uses arm yourselves with the same attitude because sin is waging war on you and you need in a real sense to be willing to die rather than negotiate with sin listen Jesus hates sin why? because it destroys people's lives and defaces and mars and ruins and brings a curse on God's good creation Jesus' attitude when he came into the world was not Mr. Wibbly Wobbly I don't really care Jesus was not gentle, meek and mild when it came to sin he was not a nice, warm, friendly man who you could have around for tea the issue of sin is a matter of life and death to him I wonder, what we would, I wonder what we would make if Jesus came to our churches sometimes. Do you remember when Jesus went to church in Jerusalem? He started kicking tables over and whipping people out of the temple and said, Get out! How dare you make my father's house a marketplace? It says in the Bible that zeal for God his father consumed him. Jesus slaps sin right in the face. He will not negotiate with sin because that's what sin needs. You can't talk with it, compromise with it, negotiate with it. It needs poking right in the eyes. Sin is too important to have a committee meeting about or to have a tea party with. We are so full of pathetic excuses as human beings. It's embarrassing. I couldn't help it. It's my broken past. I was a bit confused. Even when someone challenges us about our sin, we say, well, I know it's wrong, but I just don't know what to do. I'll tell you what Jesus would do. He would get rid of it. And that's what we need to do. We need to have the same attitude as Jesus. To stop dithering about as though tomorrow or next week or next year would do. We live in desperate days. How many people who claim the name of Jesus mess around with sin instead of calling it what it is. Christian men, including pastors who are addicted to watching porn online in secret because nobody sees. Christian boyfriends and girlfriends who sleep together in private and lead worship in public. We've brought up a whole generation of young people who have no idea anymore what sin is. And that's inside the church, never mind outside of it. What would the Lord Jesus make of that? I was just um, in our loft yesterday just like you do cleaning out the loft and I just came across this book and uh, just listen to this quote about the Lord Jesus 
We Christians rightly recognise Christ as the very embodiment of love. But Christ was no bleeding heart. And he was no spineless invertebrate. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild, never existed. He is a 19th and 20th century fiction. Here, at various times and when the situation demanded, the real Jesus publicly denounced sinners as snakes, dogs, foxes, hypocrites, foul tombs and dirty dishes. He actually referred publicly to one of his chief disciples as Satan. So that his hearers would not miss his point, he sometimes referred to the object of his most intense ridicule, both by name and position, and often face to face. And the man here goes on to say, I cannot say it forcefully enough, Christ did not affirm sinners. He affirmed the repentant. What would Jesus make? of our churches, our lives, our world. Jesus is not confused about sin. He sees it for what it is and he declares war on it because he hates it with a passion. He was ruthless with sinners and he was ruthless with sin. Let me... um, just take you to one or two other places <clears throat> Mark chapter 9 page 1014 if you've got a church bible Mark chapter 9 <clears throat> this is the words of Jesus so called gentle Jesus meek and mild just imagine if you're hearing this Mark chapter 9 verse 42 Jesus says if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a great fat millstone tied round his neck (laughs) and then he says if your hand causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Do you get the point? Jesus hated sin and he used shocking, withering language to confront sinners with how serious it is. One of our issues, you know, is that we fear suffering, we fear death, we fear even hell. We fear this and that and the other, but we do not fear sin. The worst thing of all. When I was at uni in Birmingham, one of the elders in the church that we went to, students, Jane and I, he, he gave me a book, it's a modern copy of a very old book. I don't know if a book like this would ever get published now. It was written in 1669 by a godly man called Ralph Venning. And his title for his book was The Sinfulness of Sin. What a title. We'd we'd say, well, I'm not blind, that's morbid. This is what he says, Ralph Venning. In general, 
sin is the worst of evils, the evil of evil, and indeed the only evil. Nothing is so evil as sin. Nothing is evil but sin. And as the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, so neither the sufferings of this life nor of that to come are worthy to be compared as evil with the evil of sin. Sin is worse than affliction. Sin is worse than death. Sin is worse than the devil. Sin is worse than hell. Affliction is not so afflictive. Is that even a word? Death is not so deadly. The devil is not so devilish. And hell is not so hellish as sin is. The four evils I've just named are truly terrible. And from all of them, everyone is ready to say, Good Lord, deliver us. Yet none of these, or all of them, together are as bad as sin. Therefore our prayer should be more to be delivered from sin. And if God hear no other prayer... Yet as to this, we would say, we beseech you to hear us, good Lord. It's a bit kind of quaint language, isn't it? But you get the point. Sin is the worst thing there is. And we fear everything else except sin. I think Ralph Benny knew something of Jesus' attitude towards sin. The biggest part of Jesus' attitude here is that he would rather die then let sin win. The real attitude that Peter is getting at is that Jesus was willing to die than sin himself and he was willing to die to get rid of sin once and for all. Now you may know that this is raw for Peter. There was a time, 30 years before he wrote this letter, when he was with Jesus, And Jesus began to explain to his friends that he was going to go to the cross. And he said to them, I'm going to suffer many things. He was preparing himself. That was the attitude. He was ready to go to the cross. I'd rather die than let sin win. And Peter, he's writing this letter, takes Jesus on one side. Can I have a little quiet word, Lord? I don't really think the language you're using is very appropriate. You're very important. Why on earth would you want to die? Do you know what Jesus said to Peter? Get lost, Satan. (laughs) Get lost, Satan. Get behind me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What does that tell you about Jesus' attitude? Nothing. No one could put him off going to the cross. He was determined to die. He was choosing to die and he knew that sin means death. Do you know what Jesus went on to say then? Mark chapter 8. He said, Take up your cross and follow me. That's exactly, I think, what Peter means here in this hard verse. Jesus' attitude was, I will not let sin win. I would rather die. And if you're going to live a Christian life, you can't follow Jesus unless you take up your cross and you are willing to die. To sin. And to put God first. You can't be a Christian if that's not true for you. And Jesus is using shocking language. We we say to people, come to Jesus and everything will be fine. Jesus said, 
I want you to pick up your cross, put it on your back and follow me. Because if you don't, your sin will sink you to hell. You've got to get this right. Because your life depends on it. I feel tired now. <laughs> why, why then do I say that true and real and genuine Christianity involves looking back? Because the cross of Jesus will show you what Jesus thinks of sin. And how much he loves sinners. And it will help you and steal you against being weak or soft on sin. I came across an illustration the other day that's very simple. Remember this. Just imagine a husband defending his wife from an AIDS-infected rapist. Just imagine that. He catches the rapist about to attack his wife and like any loving husband would, he intervenes and he successfully protects his wife but in doing so he's badly hurt and he ends up dying. The wife is saved but at the cost of the husband's life. Can you imagine the wife then ringing the would-be rapist and arranging to meet up at the nearest hotel to spend the night with him. Does that shock you? What would that say? But listen, that is exactly what's going on here, isn't it? How can any Christian who realises that Jesus has died to save them from the horror of sin then go and dial sin's number and parley with it and negotiate with it when Jesus died for it? That's what Peter's saying here, I think. You're in a war and sin would have you if it could and you need to have the same attitude as Jesus to steel yourself and arm yourself with the same no-nonsense, ruthless attitude. You need to be willing to die, if necessary, rather than negotiate with sin. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Does verse 1 make sense now? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. And as a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. The idea here in Peter's mind, I think, is that by looking back to the cross, they will steal themselves to live holy lives and to face hardship cheerfully and willingly, as Jesus did. It is hard. But they're suffering for doing good. What a radical and amazing part of the Bible. Um, we need to talk about looking forward as well, don't we? So we're not quite done yet. Let's um, just have a lot of think about verses 3 
uh, down to six. And we'll, we'll not be as long with, with these. Before we do, I want you to notice that Peter says some things about the world that they live in. And I think this is very helpful. And I just want to clarify four things very quickly about the world they live in. Godless world. Verse three, he says to them, listen, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do. <laughs> He's got a turn of phrase, hasn't he, Peter? You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans used to do. First thing I want to say then is, whatever sin you've committed, it's enough. It's never, it's never too soon to give up on past sins. You spent enough time doing that, Peter says. Some Christians, probably me included, think, I wish I had a really amazing Christian story. I wish I'd lived a life of sex, drugs and rock and roll and then Christ met me and had a Damascus Road experience and it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to tell people how wicked I'd been and how much Jesus had turned my life around. You, it's enough it's enough you know some Christians think I've not really seen enough of the world yet wish I could just have a bit of sin first and then I'll live a holy life Peter says it's enough the time is now whatever you've done you've spent enough time doing that today is a new day follow Christ so that's, that's a good thing I think there's a great hope here as well for a godless world. Some people have fallen for the lie that does the rounds that says this, Christianity is only really for nice, middle class, moral, respectable people. If you're brought up in that kind of way, Christianity will really appeal to you. You can sort of be a moral person and then add Christianity onto that and all will be well. Look at what Peter says. You've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans used to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. Is he going too far? He's describing the culture that they're living in, isn't he? You only have to read the paper. He's not, of course, he's not saying that every individual person is doing all of these things. What he's describing is a godless culture. How up to date is that? Just like our culture. And Peter knows that it is only the gospel that can make a difference in that godless, dark and despicable culture. You've spent enough time doing that. The time is now. Jesus can save the greatest sinners who have lived the worst lives and he can totally forgive them and totally change them. So there's great hope here in these verses. Um, last of all, I just want you to notice the irony of this godless world in verse 4. I don't know whether Peter's having a laugh here, but um, there's, a, there's a bit of subtle humour here for sure. You've spent enough time doing all these things. 
And these pagans think it's strange that you don't do the things that you used to do. So get this. Here's, here's someone who spent their life living a debauched life. They come face to face with Jesus and their life is turned around and they, and they, they know what it is to be righteous. And their old friends say, what on earth happened to you? What's the matter with you? Are you not coming out? And they heap abuse on you. Listen, they're not even happy. All of this stuff that they're doing is because they feel empty, miserable, thirsty, filling their days with all kinds of stuff. You get your life sorted and they laugh at you and think, why do you not want to do what we do? Well, did it do you any good? The irony and the kind of humour here, what a ridiculous dark culture it is. We do all the things that we know make us miserable and hurt us and drag us down, empty, futile lives. And when someone's converted, we get angry with them. What is that all about? Does that, if that doesn't show the sinfulness of sin, nothing will. What an irony there is in this godless world. But here's the future dimension. Just dealing with that, those verses, we'll, we'll kind of move to a close pretty quickly. In verse 5, he says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He doesn't just want them to look back to the cross and to the attitude of Jesus, but he wants them to look forward to a coming day when the Lord of Lords will come to judge this broken and godless world. This day will be fearful for his enemies. But it will be glorious for those who share in his victory. Just notice that um, Peter says they'll have to give an account to him who is ready. That's a chilling phrase, that, isn't it? Do you know the only thing that separates sinners from God's judgment is God's timing. He is ready now to judge the living and the dead. Now. It could be even today. There's nothing that stands in the way. He's ready now. And the only thing that separates God's enemies from his righteous indignation is his sovereign choice the problem for these people is that some of their friends have been killed martyred for their faith and their persecutors have been saying things like here we are still alive God hasn't stuck us down no bolt of lightning from the sky your friends are dead fat lot of good the gospel did them Verse 6 is a difficult verse, but I think this is what Peter's driving at. This is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, that is, your friends who believe the gospel, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. This world, in other words, will judge them as failures. They believed the gospel and they died like everyone else does. In the cemetery, there's an atheist 
and a Muslim and a Hindu and a whatever you want to call it and a Christian. The gospel that you believed in and lived for and suffered for has done you no good. That's how men judge. But look at the end of verse 6. But live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Death is not the end. It looks like they've lost and that they've wasted their lives. But from God's perspective, they're alive in the Spirit and therefore victorious just like Christ was. When Jesus returns, those who get away with murder will be brought to justice. Those who supported the killing of unborn children will not be able to wipe the blood from their hands. Those who perverted marriage will have to answer to Almighty God. Those who promoted casual sex will find that their days of pleasure have come to an end. And those who malign you and heap abuse on you because you don't join in with what they're doing will have to explain themselves to Jesus. That's only one side of it though. Those who stand for mercy and justice in Jesus' name will reap their reward. Those who suffer for Christ and die for their faith will receive a martyr's crown. Husbands and wives who kept their wedding vows will be glad on that day that they did. Those who lost their jobs because they wouldn't compromise their faith will receive a hundredfold from the Lord himself. Students at universities who remain pure because of their commitment to Jesus will see his smile. Single mums who sacrificed everything to raise their children for Jesus will find that the Lord himself has not forgotten them. Missionaries who served like Paul and Susan Boothby in lonely and often dangerous places will find a hero's welcome. Their spirits will live with God. Martin Luther, great reformer, wrote a hymn. I don't think we could sing it because it's really hard. <laughs> but let me just quote something from it. It's called A Mighty Fortress. Just listen to this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Living for Jesus in a hostile world. You need to look back to the cross. And you need to look forward to his coming again.
got to ask you after all that what will you do with Jesus what does he mean to you I don't mean the person sitting next to you what does he mean to you is, is he your saviour or will he one day be your judge you cannot hesitate because hesitating is really saying no isn't it the time is now to come to him to put him first to stop messing and nail your colours firmly to his mast and to take up your cross and to follow him wherever he leads and whatever it costs for his name's sake Amen. Oh,